You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 10th, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are Bob Novella. Hello. Rebecca Watson. Hello. Perry DeAngelis. Right on. And Jay Novella. Good evening, everybody. Welcome all. Hi. Thanks, hey, for, thanks for joining me again. So today is a, a podcast of distinction in that this is our one-year anniversary, more or less. Yay. We made it. We crossed the one-year mark. This is our 42nd podcast, um, and we've been doing this now for oh, just over one year. And also, we've been renewed for a second season. That's right. We've been renewed for a second season. <laughs> right. So more more episodes to come. Steve, Flying aren't there 52 up. weeks in a year, though? What's yeah, the, well, um, we had a, you know, when we initially started, we had some kinks to work out and get our schedules in tune and everything. So the first few months, you know, we were a little intermittent. But I think for the last, like, six or seven months, we've been pretty much every week without missing any any weeks. So you know, hopefully next week, we'll, next year, we'll put out 52 episodes. We'll try not to miss... We're also flying up on the uh, iTunes download uh, rating system. That's right. We're up to, right. I think, 20, what did you say, 24 at last? 24. 24. Yeah. I just checked. Uh, under the science category. Uh, under the science category, that's well, right. Of course. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's interesting so, the only category that matters. New <laughs> York right. Rise has uh, directly mirrored Rebecca's involvement in the show. <laughs> great addition. Thank you. Addition. Glad you noticed that. Uh, so thanks. Is, that a, is that a logical fallacy? It's a, what, no. What was that, correlation, causation. Yeah. <laughs> correlation with causation? I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One and the same. But thanks to all our listeners out there. You guys have uh, made this quite an experience. Thanks for listening. There's a couple other new news items. So the you guys heard about the, the UK's pronouncement on UFOs. So they did an official review of all of the UFO data, and they concluded that there are no flying saucers. Oh, my God. Wow. Astounding. Astounding. Well, that's Next it. Up, that's it, then. The whole phenomenon's o- finally over. over. That's it. All that right. Was, Good. Uh, Project Blue Blood Book? Was that in the... No, pr- that's a... Pl- Project Blue Book was a, was a U.S. Air Force Project investigation. Project Blue Blood Book. Blue Blood Book. England, this is, Blue Blood. This we is, didn't um, miss it, Perry. This wasn't funny. Just, yeah, technically that wasn't a joke. <laughs> this is a confidential Ministry of Defense report on unidentified flying objects. It was actually completed in 2000, uh, but was just made public through the Freedom of Information Act uh, and basically reveals that the, um, the ministry's conclusion was that there, are, there is no uh, physical or real phenomenon. There are basically no... Threats to national defense, no uh, threats to collisions with any solid objects. And and no evidence, right? Right. Well, that, that's the bottom line. There's no evidence um, to suggest that there is an alien phenomenon going on. The evidence suggests that meteors and well-known effects and other, other phenomena are responsible for, for most of the sightings. Um, although I notice on the, this, the BBC article uh, discussing this, they have a picture of a, a UFO... The caption reads, meteors may have been responsible for some UFO sightings, yet the picture is clearly not of a meteor. Yeah, it's, I saw it's that. A, it's, a, like a, it's a fake UFO. It's actually like a model of a flying saucer. 
So that's I'm sure the UF, UFOlogists are going to get a kick out of that picture with that caption. It's just a, a complete mismatch. They should have put it on the picture above it. The picture above it is a meteor. <laughs> it's, it's clearly, it probably is. I mean, there's two little bright dots of a meteor breaking up as it's re-entering the atmosphere. That would have been a better picture to put the caption underneath. Have any video of a UFO swinging back and forth? <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on a wire. Steve, what what uh, started this? Why did they make this announcement? Uh well, again, they they they, uh, they made the announcement because the re- the conclusion of the report was made public through a freedom of information request. It um, was made by Sheffield Hallam University academic Dr. David Clark made the request, so the information became public, even though it was completed Wait, it six was years ago. Freedom, it was a freedom of information request in England. I, I, apparently, they must have a similar a similar I statute. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it said Freedom of Information Act, so it's. Uh, FOIA, basically the same thing you would call it in this country. Yeah, I it's did. a 400-page report, pretty comprehensive. Now, of I'm course, cool. you know we all know this isn't going to change anyone's minds. All of the 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 UFO believers will just call this one big conspiracy cover-up, and it will not, I th- I think, persuade them for one moment. Of course. But it's at least good to see that um, the official report was unbiased and scientific enough to come to a reasonable conclusion. Now, Rebecca, again, reading your blog, which for those of you who don't read it, check it out. It's an excellent blog. Um, Thank you. You, you talked well, about... What's that address for that blog? We'll have the link on our on our site, but do you, can you say you, it you can You can link to it from skeptic.org. Skeptic.org. Yeah. So you, the, uh, recently you've been writing about Scientology again. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I can't get enough of Scientologists because every time you think that they couldn't possibly get crazier. They get just just a little bit crazier. And so recently they announced um, that soon they're going to be opening up a superhero camp. They've got this facility set up in California where people can go and go through all of these different machines to hone their, their senses. And L. Ron Hubbard established 57 different senses that he calls perceptics that he feels if people or he felt that if uh, Scientologists can build up these perceptics to a high level they can eventually take over the world mm-hmm. basically um, now we talk in DC comics or Marvel here um, <laughs> it's it's actually more of like an independent image kind of comics <laughs> yeah you weren't expecting me to follow that were do you, you have to wear <laughs> tights to get into this no, but it helps. Okay. The tights are optional. <laughs> Tom Cruise likes. I, I've heard Tom Cruise is into the tights. It's optional, but, but they all wear them anyway, right? <laughs> right. They they don't have to wear them, but they let them wear them. Uh, some they all wear some capes, of the. Too. What do you I think hope the word so. Perceptics. That's a great word. Gotta love the jargon. Perceptics. The jargon yeah. is wonderful. It's good. Now give me an example. What are some of the Perceptics that you can okay. master and become a superhero? Well, they have some that you might be able to guess, like sound, um, smell, uh, things like that. The actual senses. Yeah, the the actual senses. Um, And then there are things like, and I'm not making this up, one is (laughs) rhythm. (laughs) Rhythm. (laughs) Because, you know, when you're taking over the world, you need a little jazzy (laughs) beat. A little rhythm. For the Caucasian members of the camp. I was about to say, a lot of Scientologists, very white. I don't know if anybody's noticed this. Lots of white guys. There's a personal size. Now, that's. What, what, that's what are we left, talking about here? That's left open. Um, to interpretation. It's, 
yeah, it's not... Who knows what they mean by that? I think I do, but there you go. Um, right now, Tom Cruise is desperately concentrating on something. <laughs> um, let's see. Another is um, saline content salinity. of your body. Yes. I am the master of salinity. <laughs> oh, yeah, triple and- in my... <laughs> The best thing I could come up with for that is destroying slugs that happen slugs to be around beware, the house. Right? Yeah. I drew a little comic if I anybody wants to see that on the blog. Rebecca, the comic was utterly awful. It was awful. But it was delightfully you loved it. awful. It was delightfully awful. You, you loved it. You know it. Um, yeah. Compass direction. Um, perception of conclusions, past and present. I don't know. Um, oh, awareness of not knowing. Which awareness of I wasn't knowing. aware of that one. No. Yeah. <laughs> awareness guy, of not knowing. Rebecca, in your your blog, the guy I read the article, and the the guy said that he saved some kid's life because no one else uh, saw this truck barreling down on top of the kid. Yeah, yeah. They were at a, a crosswalk, and apparently nobody saw a giant truck about to crush a small child, but this guy did. What a superhero! Yeah, and he he didn't say he like pulled the kid out of the way i think he said he just yelled or something and the kid got you out know of the, way the thing is if you try to be more perceptive you will be right yeah, so, yeah it's called paying attention yeah so how can they judge you know is there any way to test these claims you know i really don't think that they're running through a whole lot of clinical trials over there at right. crazy international no, probably. <laughs> well here's my favorite superhero power this one beats them all perception of appetite Come on. <laughs> what couldn't you do with that? I mean, you, you would always know when you're hungry. Care for we an apple, we, Scientology uh, man? No thanks. I, mean, I, I always have a problem of, you know, figuring Knowing out when, when you're hungry. Yeah. When I was reading the article, I thought it was very humorous to, uh, if you could encounter someone who has no perception of gravity. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that kind of be like a drunk person? <laughs> perception of gravity. Well, maybe it's a drunk, funny. when you're when you're describing what scientists believe, you have to always, you know, parenthetically say scientists. I mean, Scientologists really believe this. I'm <laughs> not making this up. That's right. Yeah. True. Somewhere, Incredible. Tom Cruise is sitting on a mountain of money. He's been with some of the prettiest women on the planet. He is amazingly famous and everything, and he is one of the dumbest people that walks the face of the earth. Yeah, but you're not going to be making fun of him when he uh, when he improves his personal size. <laughs> oh my God, he'll he'll knock you over in your unawareness of your own gravity. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go. Let's do a couple of emails. The first one comes from a man named Tracy, and he says, "Don't let the name fool you. I'm a guy." All right, Tracy. Tracy writes, <laughs> greetings from the northeast kingdom of Vermont. Oh, so he's a local boy. I've heard of that. Uh, stumbled across your podcast after, after listening to part of some other podcast where Lloyd Pye was being interviewed and couldn't believe the absurdity of how he dealt with science. I was looking for a dose of rationality and find it with you folks. In one of the earlier podcasts, you were talking about how various night sky objects get mistaken for UFOs. There is a great website that tracks the various man-made satellites orbiting the Earth. Put in your location information, and you can get a schedule of what is coming up or what has already passed by. I have noticed 
how some UFO reports coincide with satellite passage. If you get a chance, check out one of the Iridium satellite flares when they pass over your area. They are quite spectacular. Some are magnitude negative 9. The link is www.heavens-above.com. He says, your podcasts have sharpened my critical thinking. I find them to be quite entertaining and well, as well as informative. However, there has been an unfortunate side effect. My echinacea seems to have stopped working. Mm. Keep up the good work and great shows. Well, thanks, Same. Tracy. Uh, yeah, this is, I, I remember reading about the Iridium flares a few years ago. And I think I was talking to you about this, Bob, and thinking, oh, my God, yeah. the, the uh, UFO sightings are going to skyrocket. I mean, they're just going to go through yeah. the roof with these iridium flares because these are satellites that actually produce these very bright flares. Uh, and you, you could actually see with the naked eye. And it's interesting now that you can track yeah. them. Now, th- th- these are a very good resource for anyone who, you know, who attempts to investigate UFO sightings. If you do that, you know, what, what historically has been found is that the, m- the more carefully and diligently you look to find a mundane explanation for a sighting. The, the lower the percentage of unexplained sightings becomes. Uh, and some honest researchers in the area, even those that may have started out as believers, realize that, you know, if, if you just investigate hard enough, eventually you explain all of them. You know, maybe there's a, res- there's a residue of a couple percent where there's just not enough information to investigate them properly. But no sort of well-documented and investigatable sightings that... You, you couldn't explain if you had enough information and you were diligent enough. And this is the kind of resource that you, uh, that you need to use. So uh, thanks for the link, link Tracy. We'll watch the sky for those iridium flares. Um, and incidentally, uh, if you're Lloyd Pye, I think we did talk about him on a previous podcast. I think it was in the context of the Star Child Project. This guy thinks that um, somebody found a skull of an alien-human hybrid I wrote a, a detailed article about it, which you'll find on the Ness website, uh, in our articles page. But he, Pi is a uh, an unadulterated fruitcake. This guy believes everything weird. And he wrote the book, Everything You Know is Wrong. Second email comes from Fred in Quebec, Canada. And uh, this is a quick follow-up of, I believe, our last show. He writes... Hi, guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast. This week you talked about a spa pamphlet that said we should drink eight glasses of water a day. That sounds like bunk to me. Shouldn't it be the body needs the equivalent of eight glasses of water a day? Don't we get water from the food and juices we take every day? If we get a good night's sleep, eight hours, that leaves 16 during the day, so that's one glass every two hours. My guess is that if you try it, you'll feel so bloated you won't do it again. Is it just me or is this bunk? Keep up the good work. Well... Yeah, I think we might have mentioned that as an aside when talking about the uh, the spa stuff. As like, yeah, it's generally a good idea to keep well hydrated. But I, I agree with him, Steve. I, I have read in a bunch of places where you know it is kind of a myth. Somebody actually tried to investigate. You know, it's, that's kind of like you know a common wisdom, something that's kind of you know very ubiquitous. The feeling that yeah, eight glasses a day. Somebody actually, and I'm sorry, I don't have any citations, but somebody said, well, I want to investigate this, and he looked through. You know all sorts of uh, records of experiments and things, and he could not find any reference, any right. any experiment or any evidence that that yeah, eight glasses a day is good. 
and I I do tend to agree with him that it it you do get so much so much water in, from your food that you really don't I don't think you really do need eight full glasses a day. I mean, it's just surprising how much water you get from solid food. I think I read somewhere that a a, a slice of bread is like forty percent water, or something crazy right. like that. It's just, yeah, and actually, you don't Snopes it. Uh, Snopes investigated that okay. and found that it was false. Baseless. It's just baseless. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it makes no sense. I mean, obviously the eight glasses a day is a completely arbitrary figure. Who knows what the origin of that is? But, you know, people need different amounts of water. It depends on how dry the environment is, how much activity you undertake, what you what you do eat, how big you are, uh, what your kidney function is like. There's all sorts of variables that you'd have to, that you'd have to plug in to really know how much water you need. I thought that was just a good average. You know, when I've read, read that a million times, a lot of people... We're passing around that email about well, how bad it is on your body to be dehydrated. It was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, some of the things in there sounded really scary, but some of the things that I thought were interesting, and I've even I've talked with Bob about this, where if you're hydrated enough, your metabolism actually could increase from it. You can lose weight from drinking enough water. Well, but just try- only to the extent that you're, it's better if you're not dehydrated. Yeah. Like overhydrating is not helpful. In fact, it's harmful. You know, it's kind of silly in that we have evolved over millions of years a very, very powerful, precise mechanism for regulating our water. You know, when you need water, you know it because you get thirsty. And if you drink more water than you, than you need, you'll pee it out. Uh, what I what I do recommend is that you know you just listen to your thirst. If you feel thirsty, drink. You know, just don't go thirsty for a long time. Uh, if you want to know if you're getting enough water, actually, you could kind of do a rough estimate of what we actually do in the hospital. And that's just look at your urine. If your urine's really dilute, you're getting more water than you need. If it's really dark, you're probably not getting enough water. And if it's somewhere in between, it's probably just right. The only real recommendation I would make is that. You, if you are going to do extreme conditions, like run a marathon or be out in, in the hot weather for a long time, uh, then you may want to prehydrate uh, a little bit and also just make sure you have access to hydration. You don't want to go a long time in the, in, like, the heat in a dry environment uh, and not be able to hydrate yourself. That's all common sense. It's fascinating, Steve. I can't wait to go look at my pee. Right. No. Now look, look at your pee every day. I'm, I'm going to go do that right now. Do you guys mind? Absolutely. We'll we'll do it on air. That's fine. Go ahead. What's silly is to think that you have to like force yourself to drink more water than you think you need because it's somehow healthy. You're just going to pee it out if you drink more water than you need. And in fact, there was a recent article, recent by like four or five months ago, that showed that uh, marathon runners who like aggressively hydrate themselves actually hurt themselves because they dilute out their um, their electrolytes. So you can overdo the water. That's why things like Gatorade are often better. They're a little better. They are. It's still not the same. Watered down Gatorade. You, you could still overdo even the even Gatorade's not anywhere near the salinity of your blood, so you could still dilute out your electrolytes. But Steve, what if you were a Scientologist and you can control the salinity? That's right. Then it's not a problem. Body. There you go. Well, there you go. You could make your urine any color you want. Oh my God! <laughs> Greatest superpower ever. Uh, I I remember I went to uh, Bob. Bob's uh, wife now, her family used to own a uh, ice cream parlor, and one time I went and got a, uh, a lime ice that he made there, <laughs> and the food coloring he used did not metabolize, <laughs> and I thought that I was really sick. I'm like, oh my God, something's wrong, and then I'm like, wait a minute, I ate something green yesterday. <laughs> 
Well, we have a wonderful interview uh, with Eugenie Scott, so let's go to that interview now. Joining us now is Eugenie Scott. Uh, Dr. Scott is the director of the National Center for Science Education. She's the author of the textbook Evolution versus Creationism, and for the last 20 years or so, she has been at the forefront of the uh, battle between teaching science and evolution and against attempts at uh, promoting creationism and intelligent design in our public schools. Jeannie, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for talking with us tonight. So this is a topic that that we deal with quite frequently on this show. Uh, you know, creationism and intelligent design is one of our favorite pseudosciences. So just tell me, since you're on the front lines there, how do you think we're doing? How's the, the fight going overall? Well, at the National Center for Science Education, we sometimes feel like the Red Queen, that we're running as hard as we can to stay mm-hmm. in the same place. But right. we do get ahead of, the, ahead of the pack every once in a while, and... Uh, in this last uh, in this last six months or so, there have been some some notable successes for what I would consider the good guy side on this. Uh, clearly, the one that most people would have in mind uh, if they're thinking about this would be Kitzmiller versus Dover, the federal district court case about Absolutely. the policy in Dover, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That was a, definitely um, something that that boosted all of our um, our enthusiasms. <laughs> And but also some other uh, issues which um, might not have made uh, everybody's newspapers. The, um, shortly after the Kitzmiller decision, the state of Ohio rescinded a, a very bad policy that it had in its state science education standards, as well as a model curriculum that basically was a, a shill for intelligent design. And that certainly was very very positive because. Uh, changes in science education curricula around the country are, are one of the major ways that the anti-evolutionists have utilized in the last several years to try to advance their cause. Right. Yeah, it certainly seemed to me after the Kitzmiller decision that uh, a lot of sort of the grassroots creationist efforts were in a little bit of a retreat. Uh, a lot of the decisions by school boards for whatever to introduce either wishy-washy language or anti-evolution language was withdrawn or pulled back, almost as if they were intimidated a little bit by this decision. Is that your sense as well? Well, yes and no. Um, I think uh, after Kitzmiller, partly because the Kitzmiller decision was just so solid, I mean, you can read it on our website, uh, as well as transcripts and witness statements and lots of other goodies. But if you take the time to at least just skim through this decision, it is just so solid against Amazing. intelligent design of science. I mean, it's quite, quite wonderful. I think there was a slight period of disarray, uh, but I, I keep trying to remind people that even though we're all kind of fixated on intelligent design these days, because it's been in the paper and um, it's actually in many respects a, a more interesting kind of anti-evolutionism. Don't forget that approximately half of the country, according to just about any poll you go to, rejects the idea of evolution. And the major and largest anti-evolution movement is still the 
somewhat more old-fashioned, if you will, creation science movement. They, in creation sti- science is still the larger movement. It has more organizations, it has more money, and it reaches more people than intelligent design does. So intelligent do design do- is fun because, you know, it's tossing around information theory and molecular <laughs> biology and stuff like that. But I tell you, the, the, the traditional creation science people are far, far more influential. And, uh, well, just this last, um, earlier this same week that we're recording this, uh, a small school district in southeastern Missouri invited uh, an evangelist down from the Answers in Genesis creationist ministry to do a full school assembly on Monday morning about uh, the problems of evolution, the problems of origin of life. And uh, although they, I haven't seen any tapes or haven't, actually I've been on the road myself, so I haven't talked to anybody about what actually happened, but I suspect that he never mentioned the Bible once. I suspect he just went out there and trashed evolution, left mm-hmm. students with the idea that, wow, evolution is really in tough shape scientifically. Gosh, I guess if evolution didn't do it, God did it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this whole... This whole trashing of evolution, the evidence against evolution approach, which um, you were asking, where are we going next? Well, <laughs> that's the next uh, frontier. Uh, th- this is this is has been part of the anti-evolution movement for a long time. Uh, given the court reversals for creation science and intelligent design, it's only going to become stronger, and it's harder to deal with from a legal standpoint. Mm-hmm. Jeannie, I'm I'm a little surprised. I didn't even realize that the creationists had kind of separated themselves from the intelligent design movement so cleanly, do they not interact at all? There's an interesting symbiosis uh, between the two. In terms of content, as as we showed very, very clearly in the Kitzmiller case, and, and you can read all about it, intelligent design is just a subset of the ideas of creation science in the sense right. that there's there's nothing in intelligent design that wasn't already present in creation science, but intelligent design doesn't say anything about uh, the age of the earth or the Grand Canyon being cut by Noah's flood and some of the other kind of more offbeat ideas that creation science promotes. And and for for the last um, well ten years or so, there's been this uneasy um, peace between the two where um, the intelligent design people have, have said, look, let, let's just set aside uh, biblical creation for a while and you know, let, let, let us all link arms against evolution. And, and once we've uh, vanquished evolution, then we can have a nice, polite argument amongst, amongst Christians about how old the earth is. And, right. and I, I think part of what happened was the intelligent design folks started getting all the attention. And, and I think there might have been a little bit of jealousy on the part of the traditional creation science folks who basically supported them. And now they're starting to withdraw a little bit, um, claiming that the ID movement is, is insufficiently biblical. It's really not bringing people to Christ. It it's, uh, doesn't go far enough. And yet what we find over and over, we found this certainly in Dover, we find it in Kansas. I can give you any number of communities where people who used to call themselves creation science supporters morphed into intelligent design supporters. And if they've gotten the memo from the leadership of, of, of the intelligent design movement now, they are now morphing into um, critical analysis of evolution supporters and they're another kind oh of euphemism. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, honey, this is not over. <laughs> not over and over. Well, it's just the, the marketing efforts are just getting slicker, which is what's 
disturbing, I think. Well, it's it's evolving. Oh yeah, I mean th- this is classic. I mean it, you know if, if you ever have understood adaptive radiation as, as a biological concept, you see it here. <laughs> you know, given a changing legal environment, it's necessarily necessary to uh, adaptively radiate into new strategies. <laughs> We're seeing it clearly. Do you think that they're better at marketing than us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if you really want to see some good examples of this, go to the um, Discovery Institute. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I like to call to people's attention, just because it's, it's, it's amusing in a way, is the, um, uh, the, this great enthusiasm that folks, you, you know the Discovery Institute, that's the main think tank for yeah. intelligence yeah, design. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, just in case all the folks listening to us didn't know that, mm-hmm. it's probably good to let them know right away. But over at the Discovery Institute, they seem to have this fixation on Darwinism. And, you know, the Darwinists, the dogmatic Darwinists doing this, and Darwinism says that. And it's almost like a tick with these folks. Um, they can't seem to get write a paragraph or maybe more than two or three sentences without putting Darwinism or Darwinist in it. <laughs> and they use it as an epithet. Yeah. And of course, I've, I've, uh, I was just up at the University of Washington, and I was kind of playing with my audience a little bit. And I said, "Okay, raise your hand if you're if you've ever gone to a scientific conference." And of course, a whole bunch of hands went up because this is <laughs> sponsored by the science departments, right? So you know, there must have been seventy-five hands went up in the audience. I said, "Okay, now keep your hands up if you've ever walked up to another scientist at a conference and said." Hi, I understand you're a herpetologist. I'm a Darwinist. And everybody just <laughs> laughed. And of course, all the hands went down. Because we don't refer to ourselves as Darwinists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we refer to ourselves as evolutionary biologists. But Darwin, a Darwinist is a practitioner of Darwinism. And Darwinism is an ideology. And right. ideologies are bad. That's like communism or racism or maybe even feminism, but ideologies are bad. Isms are bad. They've got nothing to do with science. And isn't it terrible that Darwinism is an ism? They want to equate evolution with atheism. And one yeah. of the ways that they do this rhetorically is by this this compulsive uh, use of, of this epithet, uh, Darwinism. And it, it, it works because if you – actually, I was on a, I was on a um, radio show with uh, Michael Behe a couple of years ago, maybe just last year. And uh, he was doing this, well, Darwinists do this, and Darwinism says – I said, hey, Mike, what do you mean by Darwinism? And Mike kind of stopped for a minute because he didn't, you know, he didn't know what I was talking about. And the host said, oh, he means evolution. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. To the right. general public – Darwinism is the same thing as evolution. So if you make an ism out of it, then that, that further taints the idea of evolution with, um, with ideology, with atheism, and so forth. So they, like, rhetorically, they do, they do really well. They're they, very they, slick, you know, but they're coming out of a tradition that has itself evolved over centuries to be very appealing to human psychology, so they know what they're doing. You know, I mean, relig- religions have evolved over thousands of years, right? Well, I think in terms of, of American culture, though, the best thing they have going for them is, is their fairness argument. Mm-hmm. Well, let's give the students all the evidence and let them make up their own minds. Wouldn't you want the students to know all of the information about evolution, not just the evidence in support of evolution, which they properly should teach in the public schools, but also the evidence against evolution, the strengths and weaknesses of evolution? I mean, most Americans think, wow, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, why don't we do that in our schools? 
And yet, if you were to say to to say to say to parents, you know, well, why don't we teach our students the the strengths and weaknesses of of the germ theory of disease? You know, they would probably say, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Yeah. Even though there really aren't any weaknesses to the germ theory of disease, <laughs> nor are there weaknesses of gravity or you know, yeah, that, that's. Or I mean, the create the intelligent design people keep running these this funny poll. Uh, they've run it in Ohio and they've run it in a few other places. Um, where they um, one of the questions that they ask is, uh, you know, agree or disagree that uh, students should stu- um, students should be taught the strengths and weaknesses of Darwin's there we go Darwin's again of of Darwin's theory of evolution. And of course, they get you know seventy eighty percent people say yeah we should. I'll bet if you were to ask those same respondents, you know, any sample of 1,200 Americans around the country, students should be taught the strengths and weaknesses of of phlogiston theory. Uh, You would get the same high percentage because what you're testing there is not people's skepticism about evolution. What you're testing there, what you're polling, is is the American cultural tradition of fairness and fair play and, and equality. Which, which well, are very good cultural traditions. You, you mentioned American culture a few times there, Jeannie. Um, you know, is this whole problem specific to the U.S.? I mean, we have listeners from around the world. Uh, is it an international problem or is it a U.S. Thing, phenomenon? And, you, and your listeners around the world are scratching their heads saying, what's wrong with those Americans? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that. that's what I always get from foreign reporters whenever they, they talk. What's, what's wrong with you? Why, are you? why is this big technological nation? Yeah, it, basically the short answer is yes. Um, there are very small creationist movements bubbling up hither and yon. Generally speaking, in places where you've got a strong evangelical Protestant uh, Christian missionary movement, so uh, Korea is uh, is a place where you have a, a small creationist movement. There are a lot of evangelical Christian uh, Koreans. Um, you find it in um, uh, in Canada especially up in the Prairie Provinces. You find it, uh, there's a small movement in Australia. It's not great, but it's, it's still around. And um, I would imagine that it's, it's growing in Russia, uh, the former Soviet Union countries, because they are being flooded with uh, evangelical Christians who are there to teach them English. And everybody wants to learn English, but of course, they, along with the English, they also get the creationism and, and other kinds of nonsense. And actually, I just that that is um, that is the single most common question I get after a, a public lecture. <laughs> is this going on anyplace else? Uh, and and I actually wrote an article very recently um, to sort of explain why we have this problem here. And it uh, was just published in Cell. You can get it online. They very kindly made it available. Um, the title of it is something like um, "Anti-Evolution: It's the American Way," <laughs> and, and and there are I mean without going you know we can take up the rest of the podcast on this but the the short answer is that there is historical reasons for it there's idiosyncratic reasons for it there's reasons having to do with the settlement patterns of the United States but probably the single most important reason is that uh, it was in uh, the United States back in the 19 teens of the last century that a specific um, conservative Protestant movement called fundamentalism began. And people don't realize that biblical literalist Christianity is is uh, a fairly new thing. 
the, con- the Christianity they have on the continent, Catholicism, Lutheranism, uh, even uh, even most of the Calvinist traditions in, in Northern Europe, uh, and certainly the Church of England, these are not literalist traditions. It was pretty much uh, American evangelical fundamentalists uh, following the 12 fundamentals, as the booklets were called back in the early uh, 1900s, uh, that established this uh, kind of back-to-Genesis biblical literalist uh, tradition, which, because it's so popular in the United States, we think that it's ubiquitous. We, you know, we, we associate, many of us associate this with Christianity, but it's really a minority position within Christianity. And that's why you don't get this in England, and you don't get this in the continent, because their Christian traditions say, nah, you know, what do you mean six 24-hour days? That's nonsense. The you know, Genesis is, is uh, allegorical. Thank God. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so it's good old just historical contingency. The, the movement grew up here, yeah. took roots here, and, and thrived. And for, never for was terribly popular elsewhere. It hasn't been a terribly successful export, except very recently. <clears throat> in, the, in the sort of late late 20th century, it, it is getting a little bit more of a purchase in, say, Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, with um, with the collapse of, of Catholic liberation theology in Central and South America, uh, the Protestant missionaries are kind of gaining a foothold in uh, parts of uh, Latin America where um, formerly it was, was totally, uh, totally Catholic. Uh, in Brazil, for example, uh, Protestantism is the fastest-growing um, denomination. And the one little flare-up that we had in Brazil in the summer, I guess it was, of 2004, it's on our website, I forget exactly the dates. Too many, so much creationism, so little time. Mm-hmm. Um, but this little blip that we had in, in Brazil a couple of years ago uh, was because um, in Rio de Janeiro province, the education minister pretty much says, here's the curriculum, thou shalt teach it. And she she decided that uh, evolution wouldn't be taught. And she just happened to be one of that 16% or whatever it is of uh, Brazilians who are um, evangelical Protestants. So, you know, we may be seeing more of this in the future as um, conservative Protestant Christianity uh, increases around the globe. Now, what do you think of the notion, which is something that I've always felt, that it's also partly self-fulfilling in that the the creationist movement in this country has eroded to a large degree the quality of teaching evolution in the public schools if for no other reason they by intimidating textbook companies into watering down their treatment of the topic so they've basically manufactured a public ignorant of evolution and that's given them more fertile waters in which to stir up apparent negativity about it oh absolutely no, the uh, the the assault against evolution began uh, right after the Scopes trial uh, in 1925. According to uh, the historian Ed Larson, by about 1930, uh, evolution was effectively gone from the high school curriculum. Uh, it was taken out of textbooks. I mean, everybody thinks Scopes won. No, Scopes lost, no, yeah. <laughs> and science education lost because uh, evolution became a controversial subject and textbook publishers decided they'd sell my books if they uh, didn't have evolution as a prominent uh, component of the textbooks, and so they just took it out. I mean, and it, it actually didn't come back in until the 1960s. So Sputnik, Sputnik right? Yeah. Sputnik did not, uh, the resurgence yeah, of Yeah, that pretty much, uh, what, Sputnik was very important in focusing attention in uh, at the federal level on the need to improve science education. Would be we could have something comparable, because um, 
there certainly is, we, we certainly are greatly in need of, of improvement of, of science education. Yeah. Let's, but you know, let's talk about it with China and India. So maybe that you know competition will spur some more science education. But we'll see. Well, the the thing about China and India is that we have been uh, we in the United States have been the extremely fortunate recipients of uh, their brain drain. Mm -hmm. uh, they send their best and brightest over here to be trained, and a whole lot of those young people stay on as postdocs and as as future professors and and people who labor in the vineyards of biotech and uh, computer technology and and the other science related uh, industries and businesses. Now, this is not a xenophobic kind of statement because, like I say, I think we've been enormously lucky to have benefited from their intelligence and their uh, work ethic and, and what's, what's bad about that. The only thing that's, that's negative is that, as you were saying, things are getting better in India and Taiwan and China, and, and so a lot of these really bright young people, um, young professionals, well-trained, are thinking, hmm, I could be near my family and work in a biotech field. And so a lot of these young folks in the next 10 years are going to go home, which means that we're going to have a big hole in our uh, science uh, and technology pipeline. Now, where is that going to uh, – where are, are we going to have enough well-trained Americans to fill that? I don't think so. Already, we graduate uh, only 20% of the number of engineers that China graduates. Wow. So, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of reason for us to improve science education. Uh, one being uh, to improve the, uh, the pipeline so that we can continue our technological domination of the world, um, for better or for ill. At least uh, Americans have certainly benefited from that. And uh, number two, in, if, uh, one, something I've been concerned about all my life is just general science literacy. Uh, mm -hmm. We are living in a highly technological, industrial uh, economy, and this, we're, we're a democracy, and, and citizens make decisions about um, issues, many of which involve science. Are they making those decisions based upon uh, information, based upon careful consideration of, of, of data and empirical evidence, or do they lack the ability to consider that evidence? And that is a very good reason to argue for general science education, just to improve the, the overall science literacy of our public. Absolutely. So, gee, before before we uh, go on to another topic, I wanted to bring up Project Steve for a couple of reasons. <laughs> for, for the listeners, uh, the the uh, creationists, I can't remember if it was the creationists or the intelligent designers, but they came out with their list of scientists who are skeptical of Darwinism. And, it and had there like we go with Darwinism again, yeah, with don't Darwinism. we? <laughs> a couple of hundred names on there. So just to show how insignificant this whole thing was, some scientists put together a list of scientists who support evolution. Uh, and the kick was that these were all scientists named Steve or Stephanie, so which is about you know, 1% of the scientific population. So you could multiply those numbers by 100, and I believe we're in up to seven or 800 by now. Oh, I think on um, the, um, the Steve list, I think... Right, 750-something, yeah, I mean, we're, we're way up there. Right, so that means there's... 75,000. 75,000 <laughs> scientists supporting evolution to the one or 200 that signed their... That I, think, I think they're up to 500 now. 500. Ooh. You know, the, the, the problem, you know, the problem with ID, the, the, the problem with the Discovery Institute is they, they, are, they suffer from irony deficiency anemia. They just, <laughs> they don't get it. 
I mean, we, we, we did Project Steve as, as a parody, you know, of this 100 scientists doubting Darwin. So we got 200 scientists accepting evolution, all named Steve, right? And, you know, but, and, and you'd have thought that at that point they'd have gotten embarrassed enough that they would stop collecting names, but they just don't get it. You know, so they went on and they, after four years, they managed to scramble up 500 names and they had this big press release a, a few months ago about, oh, we're up to 500 names now. Well, we're not even trying to recruit Steves and Stephanies anymore, but they just keep coming in over the transom, you know. Oh, we heard about Project Steve. Gee, can I be a Steve? So, you know, maybe after this podcast, we'll get yet more PhD Steves and Stephanie. So you all go ahead and sign up. You get a cool t-shirt. Of course, the reason why I bring it up is because I was one of the original 200 Steves. Uh-huh. I have my, my t-shirt. You, have, right you have the collector's item black t-shirt. Yes. Absolutely. Show that on eBay. With all the names on the back. I am seething with non-Steve jealousy. <laughs> you, you're, you have some Steve envy. I yeah, I have Steve envy. <laughs> and I'm just lucky because I think they chose Steve in to honor Stephen Jay Gould, That's right. which is appropriate. But also yeah. because also because Steve is such an iconic American name, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Tower of Steve and Steve McQueen, and you know, all, there's, you know, Steve is just American. It's, it's just and, a fun uh, name. I thought too. Bob. Was. <laughs> It's, it's a good go-to punchline name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's it. It's got all sorts of cultural reference here. It's like if you didn't see. do Steve, you would have done Larry. You know, Larry's another good, <laughs> good question. What would we have good done? Punchline name. But Steve makes sense. So um, actually, the person who suggested it was named Steve, and so possibly uh, that might have been slight, um, <laughs> uh, slight uh, self-aggrandizement there. But <laughs> my favorite, though, of course, is the Steve song. Oh like yes, a Monty, a Monty Python esque song about Steve's Steve, believing Steve, in Steve, evolution. Steve, 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 Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Quite silly. Yeah, the, that was the um, the Australian. Um, oh gosh, Robin Williams, the same as the American comedian, but he's an uh, he's a broadcaster in in Australia and a skeptic, and a funny guy. He interviewed me at the AAAS meeting. He always comes with his with his reel to reel recorder. Speaking of technology. And uh, records uh, gets a bunch of stories from the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science meetings, and then goes back and turns them into programs for his uh, his uh, broadcast. Yeah, Will Williams is a great guy. And then when he did the story on Project Steve, some of the guys in his office just thought that was such a great story that they came up with this four part harmony on the Steve song. <laughs> we have had more damn fun with this Project Steve. I mean. This is just a gift that keeps on giving, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I did a uh, at the AAAS meeting. There's, do you know the Ig Nobel prizes? Oh yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was actually at the last ones. They were great. Oh, yes, lucky you. Well, at um, one of uh, Mark Abraham's um, uh, Friday night uh, Ig shows at the at the uh, AAAS meetings, he usually does just this little funny thing. Shows some clips from the Iggies, and but I, I did a little um, PowerPoint presentation on the morphology of Steve. <laughs> which I then wrote up, and I am so proud. I mean, you know, I've published things in science, and I've published things in uh, reviews in Nature, and you know, I've, I've got a lot of publications to my. But I am so proud to have been the author of an article in the Journal of Improbable Research. Oh yeah, that's about <laughs> as good as it gets. This, this is this is this is truly the highlight of my career. Uh, it is. It's um, Scott et al. on the morphology of Steve. 
uh, is an article where we we realized that uh, Glenn Branch in my office realized that we had the names and addresses of these Steves and Stephanies from all over the country, all over the world, really, because we've got Europeans and Australians and. We had, of course, we said, what's your T-shirt size, right? Because we sent these people the T-shirt. And so we had a measure of body size, assuming small people chose small T-shirts. And so so we did this <laughs> ridiculous analysis of correlating um, T-shirt size, small, medium, large, extra large, and, and tent um, across uh, geographic area. And, you know, we we did Bergman's and Allen's rule and island biogeography. We, we discovered, by the way, that island steves are smaller than mainland steves. Mm-hmm. And so island island dwarfism occurred in the steves just as in other mammals. And, uh, and right. it's just so silly. <laughs> so we, I, I published this wonderful paper. I and 426 co-authors. <laughs> The 426 co-authors, of course, being the Steves of the Steve. time. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm co-author. I'm co-author of an article with two Nobel laureates and and uh, Stephen Hawking. Not there so many people can say that. <laughs> I think you're going to have to change your name to Steve just to. Uh, well, people have written us and said, you know, if I change my name to Steve, can I be? I'm, I'm sorry, you have to. Be, you have to have a PhD, and your name has to be Steve. No, we're not going to do a Project Bob. <laughs> uh, that would skew the data. If people sort of changing their names. That's not. That's not fair. Yes, well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, right, well, let me let me talk to you a little bit about debating creationists. This is uh, uh, yeah. for any, anyone involved with, uh, you know, arguing against creationists, promoting evolution, promote you know, and scientific skepticism in general, eventually gets the itch to debate creationists. We've had emails too saying, "Oh, we would love it if you guys would go head to head with you know one of these ideas or creationists on the show." But I, I know your position on this a little bit that you think that it's it's kind of a double-edged sword and, and in general can be a bad idea. What, what's your current opinion about the whole notion of debating creationists? Well, you know, I'm the last person on the planet to say we should ignore, ignore these folks, right? It's my day job. <laughs> So I feel very strongly that scientists and other people who take time to learn about these things should counter the false claims of the anti-evolutionists. Now, that said, do it in an effective way. Mm -hmm. Debate is a sport. Debate is not how we do science. Uh, The classic kind of debate where you have uh, person A on one side of the stage and person B on the other side of the stage, and, uh, you know, A goes for uh, an hour and B goes for an hour, and then A rebuts, you know, the audience is comatose by that time anyway. But those kinds of, of classical debate setups mislead the public about what science is all about, because science really isn't about two people standing on opposite sides of the stage and declaiming. Uh, It misleads the public in terms of the huge amount of scientific support for evolution because visually and, and, and what is kind of communicated just by the gestalt of the whole operation is a and B, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Whereas if any, if, if this was proportionate to the actual support of, of evolution within the community, uh, there would be tens of thousands of, of scientists on, on the evolution side of the stage and, and a paltry few over there on, on the other. Anybody who, who sort of gets the itch to debate, and I mean, I hear from these folks. I mean, they'll, generally what I hear is somebody writes and says, I've, I've accepted an offer, a request to debate a creationist at my school, can you help me? (laughs) Well, come to me first. Um, What I want people to think about is, what are your goals and what are the goals of your opponent? 
and is this activity, whether it's a um, whether it's a debate or a panel or you know what, is this activity going to achieve his goals or mine? Now there, I, I mean, I do. I do directly appear with with creationists. Okay, I'll do radio shows, I'll do panels, I'll do, I will appear with creationists, but the setting and the circumstances have to be such that my goals are are met, or or that at least <laughs> there's there's a chance. A classical debate setting is not is not going to work. Yeah, it totally rigs the game against us. Particularly yeah. at a church somewhere. Uh, particularly in a setting where the other side is going to um, be bussing in large numbers of supporters for the creationists. Now, now think about what actually happens. I mean, I'm assuming that our goals, people on our side of this issue, our goals for one of these exchanges is to try to educate the public about evolution, about the nature of science, and support the teachers in their effort to continue teaching good science in the schools and, and keep creationism out. That, that seems to be a reasonable goal. If you agree to debate, one thing that will happen is your opponent will get a much larger audience. And those supporters aren't really listening to you, no matter how good you are. I actually have a little article that I wrote years ago called Debates on the Globetrotters where I compared the uh, uh, creation-evolution debate to a globetrotter game, where the creationist is the, glo- is the, uh, the globetrotters and the evolutionist oh, is the whatever the it is. Generals? The, Why? Yeah, yeah. the generals? The generals never win. And, you know, the, the opposing team that, that they take around with them uh, generally consists of some pretty good ball players. I mean, they're, you know, ex-college players or something like that. Now I think they're called the International All-Stars or something, whatever. But, you know, the, the, the team that the Globetrotters beat up on, get off some good shots. But nobody pays any attention because you're there to watch the Globetrotters, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right? And this is exactly what a creation-evolution debate is also. The audience is there to see their champion. And what happens is they get all revved up, they get all excited about this wonderful science of creationism, then they go home and they make life miserable for teachers. Mm -hmm. Now, is this our goal? (laughs) Is this really advancing our cause? I think most of the people who get all excited about debating creationists ought to think about their egos and if this is the best way to assuage them. Uh, and I would like them to take up another hobby because uh, mm. you know, assuaging their ego or making them feel good because I really pounded that creationist into the soil, they don't seem to feel they win. They never win. They always lose. They always lose in terms of the uh, way the audience uh, hears the arguments and what the audience does with the information once uh, once it gets it. You often hear, but nobody at my university will defend science, so I had to do it. Baloney. If a creationist comes and says, nobody at University X would debate me, so what? Who is he going right. to say it to? He's going to say it to 40 people in a church basement who agree with him anyway. What a lot of universities have done is gotten the word out to the science faculty, no, don't debate so-and-so when he comes. This is a waste of time. Yes, we all understand this. This is fine. And just write a little paragraph uh, to that effect, saying that uh, we don't feel that um, a public debate is the appropriate way to educate the public about the nature of science and evolution. We have examined the position presented by, you know, Kent Hovind or whoever the creationist is, and we find that, uh, you know, that, that, that is 
severely lacking in scientific credibility, he should be making his arguments to the scientific community, not to public right. uh, school boards. And then if the claim is made that the, the professors at University X were afraid to debate, just show him the statement. Now, I, yeah, I completely agree with you, although I think last year that sentiment was applied to confronting creationists in the courtroom. And there was at least, you know, one court case where the scientific community essentially declined yep, to give testimony. Okay, it absolutely was the best move, and let me tell you why. Uh, because, A, this was not a court situation. What you're talking about is the kangaroo court in Kansas. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah, right. This, was, this was a hearing that was sponsored by creationists on the Kansas Board of Education. This was uh, evolution on trial. They were going to bring in you know, famous evolutionists and, and uh, famous intelligent design supporters, and the uh, proponents of each side would be interviewed by lawyers. Well, could you imagine a bigger waste of time than that? A, there were no rules. Um, th th this, don't compare the kangaroo court with what happened in, in Harrisburg in the Dover trial. Mm -hmm. Because the Kitzmiller versus Dover was, was a real opportunity for intelligent design to present in a situation where there were, there were rules, where there was um, great transparency on all sides. I mean, you know, yes, everybody says, wow, this was a long trial. It took six weeks. No, it didn't. It took a year. We started working on the Dover trial with the Dover lawyers, uh, well, actually, before they even filed. But once they filed, um, we helped them select witnesses. We helped prepare witness statements. We uh, helped prepare the, um, the witnesses for their depositions. We helped prepare the lawyers to depose the intelligent design proponents. Um, we uh, um, helped prepare our witnesses and the lawyers for the actual uh, courtroom activities. Everybody knew what everybody had said in the depositions. Everything was on the table. Uh, it wasn't this kind of free-for-all, let's beat up on evolution, that the Kansas kangaroo court was. So the the whole structure of the event in Kansas was 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 not at all uh, anywhere near parallel to um, an actual evaluation of intelligent design. And of yeah. course, what I mean, the the Kansas situation was wrong from the get go because it was evolution on trial. It was a sham, basically. It was an absolute saying. sham. It was an absolute sham. You know, geographers don't defend the spherical Earth. Right. Evolutionary biologists don't defend evolution. And this is exactly what they wanted us to do. And so I, I have supported the Kansas Citizens for Science um, strongly in their decision not to participate. And I was extremely proud of the scientific community for, for realizing why this was bad, a bad idea. You, you don't know how many letters they sent out to uh, the, the Kansas Board of Education uh, just wrote to just about everybody whose name has appeared in the newspaper association <laughs> with the creation and evolution controversy. And bless their little hearts, they all hung in there and said, no, no, we don't think this would be a worthwhile activity. So, right. um, so basically, the, um, the, the, the sham went on at a great deal of expense, by the way, to the taxpayers of Kansas, which they didn't mm -hmm. like very much. Although, unfortunately, I, th I don't think that the mainstream media really made that clear. 
that 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 it, this hearing was a put-up job. We ha- we tried very hard, and some of the media did get it, but not all of them did. And of course, yeah, the conservative yeah. media, the media that that favors the uh, creationist position, they of course um, you know poison the waters there. <laughs> but you know, uh, we we did. Uh, we and the Kansas Citizens for Science um, did work very hard to try to try to help the media understand. And actually, the, the Kansas Citizens for Science scientists and, and citizens were were there at the hearing in the hall, and they so the reporters who were actually covered the hearing they got it. Right, well, Jeannie, are you what what's the current status in in Kansas? Do you know the uh, the State Board of Education has. Um, unfortunately um, passed uh, some very inferior science education standards where uh, they've redefined the definition of science as, so that uh, it is not restricted to natural cause and have scattered throughout the, the science education standards document all kinds of bad science that calls into question whether evolution is valid and so forth. It's the evidence against evolution approach. And those are the standards that are extant right now. But what is actually happening that's of more interest is um, that various uh, citizens in Kansas who really don't want uh, the current school board to um, create any more problems for science education are working very hard to get moderate candidates to run for um, state school board because three of the creationists are up for um, election this coming fall. What I hear from the Kansas Citizens for Science is that um, they do have good candidates and they're trying to get people to um, campaign for them and so forth. We saw what happened to the school board in Dover. Yeah, out. pretty much. Well, um, yeah. if, if the if the bad guys are voted out, so to speak, in Kansas, then in when they take office in January, they may do basically what their predecessors in 2000, uh, the year 2000, did when when the school bad school board members were voted out and more moderate ones were voted in, and just basically uh, rescind the old standards, which would be the mm-hmm. best thing. Yeah, so this is like a repeat of what happened five years ago. That's right, exactly. It's probably just going to cycle. Then you know, then they'll lose interest, and the creationists will worm their way back in, and they'll cycle back again. Probably. Well, my friend John Staver has uh, said back in 1999, uh, democracy got us into this, and democracy is going to get us out. <laughs> and he's right. absolutely right. And it's a it's a never ending struggle, it appears. Well, and that's democracy, why... democracy is much preferred over lawsuits. Believe me. That's actually what I was about to ask you because. Y- We've talked a bit about what we shouldn't do, like, uh, you know, confronting creationists in debates and things like that. But what can the average person do who's concerned about things like this? What, what, can, what can we do to, to stop it? Well, certainly inform yourself of the issues, uh, and you can do that from our website, and there's other resources that we provide. Um, secondly, pay attention. Who's running for your local school board? Who's running for school boards uh, for the state's board of education in your state? Are they people who have the best interests of science education in, in mind? Uh, you'd be surprised how few people bother to vote for those positions far down the ballot, which means it's extremely easy to take over a school board if you are somebody with an extreme position. Mm-hmm. So keep the extremists out. That is the best way to solve problems. <laughs> Don't let them begin. <laughs> If you do have a problem in your state or in your area, we also have information on our website uh, for for how to address the issues. Certainly, 
op-ed pieces in the local paper, uh, responding to letters to the editor that come in and make traditional creationist uh, statements. And again, they don't come up with anything new. The arguments have been around forever, and there's some pretty good responses to them. Go to talkorigins.org, which is an excellent site for refutations of creationist information, and of course our site as well. Well, Jeannie, uh, we're out of time. We appreciate you joining us on the Skeptic's Guide. It was a wonderful time talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Well, I enjoyed it. Uh, it it's nice to nice to sit around the phone and chat with friends. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Jeannie. Keep up the good work at the National Center. Thank we you appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Good night. Good night. Well, that was wonderful having Eugenie Scott on the show. She is the goods. She really knows she her stuff. She is super cool. I really she gets like it. Yeah. Incredible resource. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we have just enough time for a quick science or fiction. We ha- we do have a creationism themed name that logical fallacy, but I think we're going to save that till next week because I don't think I think we only have time enough for a science or fiction. So let's go to that now. It's time for science or fiction. So every week, I come up with three science news items or fact. Two are facts. Two are genuine. One is fictitious. I essentially make it up out of whole cloth. Uh, I then cha- challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake from the real ones. Which one is fiction? And of course, you at home can play along. The theme for this week is animal speech. You guys ready? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. Again, three items, two science, one fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Item number one. (laughs) Stupid. All right, clever, Hans. (laughs) Item number one. Bottlenose dolphins appear to have names and identify themselves to other dolphins by this signature sound. Item number two. Studies with European starlings... Those are birds, Perry, by the way. Mm-hmm. Indicate that they understand a basic rule of grammar previously thought to be unique to humans. And item number three, primatologists studying the proto-language of the rhesus macaque have discovered their vocabulary contains basic mathematical concepts such as numbers and operations, like addition. Is the rhesus macaque a bird or a monkey? That's a monkey. Right. So either we have... Dolphins with names, birds that understand grammar, or counting monkeys. Wait, I forget. Are we supposed to pick the one that's right or wrong? The one that's fake. You tell me which okay. one is fake. Okay. Why don't how, you... many, how many shows have you done? <laughs> <laughs> I did change the rules last week. I did change yeah, the rules he mixes it up sometimes. It's just to confuse Just to keep me. you on your toes. Apparently it's working. <laughs> All right, Twinkle Toes, you go first, Rebecca. Um, okay. Uh, I'm totally going to get this one right. I'm I'm fairly certain I know this. Um, dolphins was one. Dolphins very smart, um, smarter than me. So I'm thinking that that one's true. Uh, that they can, they have names. I mean, Flipper. Flipper had a name. Flipper was right? very smart. Yeah. <laughs> and his name was Flipper. It was in the song. So um, and then the Starlings thing. I'm. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. So I'm going with the macaque. Alrighty, Jay. Well, I I remember reading somewhere about the dolphins, so I'm pretty sure that yes, dolphins have names 
so to say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So to speak. So to speak. Okay. I, I really think that number two is the fake one. I don't think that birds... I know I know that uh, Amazon Greys are very, very advanced with language. I just don't think that um, the way that you described it is the way... is the real one for the birds. With the starlings? Yeah, the European starlings. Yeah, grammar is the new bit in that piece, yeah. So you think that one's fake? That's what I said, yes. All right. Perry? Yeah, I mean, uh, dolphins and monkeys basically could play chess together. Those are, those are <laughs> brilliant animals. Uh, birds, you know, my the the pupil of my eye is bigger than their brain pan for most of but them. But so. Perry, African greys, though, they can put they can link together colors with a command and shapes. I'm I'm sorry, who who's talking? I thought I was talking. Perry, this is your mother speaking. <laughs> Excuse me. So uh yeah, birds. They're, you think they're the birds right are out. fake too? They're right out. The boys, the actual boys. Bob. <laughs> Alright, well the, the Starling grammar one, I did read about that, uh, and you don't seem to have distorted it too much. So that's probably true. Uh one is totally feasible, although it seems kinda weird. Um I don't see why not. They're so intelligent. Why wouldn't they have designations for each other? Uh, so I'm going to say three. The macaques and the mathematical concepts doesn't seem okay, quite right. Okay, so we got right. two of you think that the counting macaques is fake, and two of you think that the birds who understand grammar is fake. Everyone believes that the dolphins have names. And so let's go to that one first. That is true. Uh, recent studies of the um, communications between bottlenose dolphins indicates that they often contain a unique signature sound which they interpret you know, unique to the individual dolphin. It seems to be a way of them identifying themselves by name to other dolphins. And I guess they come up with it then, huh? Apparently. Number two, studies with European starlings indicate that they understand a basic rule of grammar previously thought to be unique to humans. That is completely true. That is science as well. Uh, Birds so if you guys actually, actually read my website, you would know right. that it was true because I blogged about it last week. Oh, did week. you? I didn't see that on yes. your blog. I wouldn't use it if I knew that. I don't read that trash. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should have made you bet more bacon <laughs> that you were right. <laughs> you know, I'm getting hungry for this bacon. I'm ready for it. Birds, Perry, are actually quite bright. Uh, some of them are can problem solve. Oh, will you stop already with the birds? And they have quite, <laughs> so, they have quite sophisticated Please. language, and now um, European starlings were shown to have a recursive grammar. Okay, the only- there's that one chicken in Manhattan that can play tic-tac-toe. Well, you know, to, Steve, you to, be, a sick man, to be fair, though, you know, it's not conclusively proven. There is a chance. It is still up in the air, right, and right. the usual yeah. suspects are still contesting that it's not. It's not the old not. horse bit where they're like, okay, <laughs> count to five, and then the guy like basically says, once the horse gets to five, the guy... Clever Hans, right. But, but yeah, that's that's just it, though. It could be that sort of thing, and it's it's a tough thing to... There's always some legitimate you know, skepticism when you're talking about animal language, because right. you can't know what's going on inside the animal's head. But they're, they're, the evidence is, is reasonable. Again, I did say studies indicate, you know, not it's been conclusively proven. <laughs> but there's always some doubt. If you, if you train, a, for example, an African gray, because they're really, the, I think they're the most intelligent and ones. That's a type of macaw, right? Yeah, it's a bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're gray. If you, the thing that I found interesting about this this topic that you brought up, the thing is they really did have 
a uh, an African gray be able to identify shapes, colors, and commands to the point where, like, they were telling it, you know, go get the yellow triangle, and it would be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that there there's a lot of research in that area. It's you have to you have to be very very careful, and a lot of the um, the gorilla and chimpanzee research where they essentially essentially were convinced that they were able to create sign language sentences. Coco. Yeah, it's probably is very suspect, you know. There's a lot of sort of biased interpretation going on. So you have to be very, very careful. Yeah. But there's no this question is where that, we need the pets the yeah, uh, pets. The pet psychic, absolutely. Psychic, yes, absolutely. <laughs> now the third one you know, I had these two, you know, two items which were animal language. Sorry, I have to make up an animal language one for the third one. Um, there's a lot of research being done with the rhesus macaque because they're, they're actually their brains are pretty similar to human brains as far as monkeys go. So they're, they're also very easy to breed in captivity, etc. So a lot of research focuses around them. It, it took me a long time to come up with something that they haven't been demonstrated to do. You know, you <laughs> think about like how big their vocabulary is you know, they are in terms of identifying concepts and abstractions. I, and every time I said, all right, this is going to be my thing, and I you know, looked it up to see if it's been demonstrated, if they could do it or not, and there was you know, research that you could reasonably interpret as that they could do it. I had to go to math, you know, which I thought was a little out there, but counting oh, and yeah. addition and stuff, yeah, that, that I couldn't find anything about that, so... Um, that that what that I made up, but it actually took me a while to make up something that actually wasn't true. Steve, actually, I just did a search, yeah. <laughs> and I found this article: monkey math machinery is like humans. Uh, yeah, but they don't have they don't have language for numbers in addition. Ah, uh, right. okay. Language, you know, not that they. <laughs> I know you could. They're, they're, they can understand the the concepts of amounts, you know, and. With chimpanzees, for example, I think a lot of the research actually has been with that. So they can't, they can't understand mathematical concepts in the abstract, but they don't have a language for it. Which is also, why... any monkey could whip any bird's ass. That's not true. What do you mean that's not true? Well, you don't think a, you think a little spider monkey could kick the, an ostrich's ass? Stig could trip him right on his long, stinkly <laughs> neck. Oh, wait, wait, is the monkey allowed to hold a shank of some sort? A shank. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm sure that the monkey has a shank. Jump right up on his neck and give him a nostril flip. <laughs> do. Well, Thank I'm just you. saying, that's the that's one of the monkey's main strengths, is the ability to operate a sharp the object. The whole opposable thumb yeah. situation. You know? yeah. well, there is something scary about a monkey with a knife, I'll, I'll give you that. There sure is. Furious George... <laughs> Furious George. George. (laughs) That's a Simpsons joke. I can't take credit for that. Ostriches are such chumps. Perry, you're just an avian bigot. Face it. (laughs) Come on. Ostriches are chumps. You're a birdist. Along with their avian cousins. You you have to stop ostracizing the ostriches. Oh, that was bad. That was bad. Oh, my God. Perry, did you know an ostrich could kill a man with one kick? Oh, please. Did you ever see Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds? I mean, come on. It's really terrifying. Watch out. we got to tiptoe amongst the seagulls. Get away from me. Give those birds a drop kick. (laughs) All right, we've we've descended far enough. (laughs) (laughs) And we are are mercifully out of time. And we're done. So... Bob and Rebecca get credit this week for get, for picking out oh, the, yeah. uh, the fiction from the science. Uh, oh, yeah. So good job. They're Thank so you. so smart. We are. <laughs> so, guys, thanks again for joining me. It was a fun show. Thank you, Steve. 
It was a, it was a good, good one-year anniversary show. It's a very good yeah. show. Uh, Evan could not be with us tonight, so we, we miss you, missed you, Evan, but he'll be back next week. I'll be out next week. Evan will be back next week. Yep. Perry will be in Alaska, right? That's where I'll be cruising around, and keeping well, my eyes open for aromatherapy salespeople and anything else. Yeah. Go ahead right. on wait, the boat. Perry, I'm issuing you a Rebecca-level challenge right now. What is it? What is it? You have to come back with a very good story about how you found a, a skeptical issue while on your vacation and how you debunked it. Absolutely. Yeah, unlike Bob, you have to actually confront it directly. Yeah, you have to do something about it. Somehow I don't think that'll be a problem with Perry. Of course. Well, that's our show. Thanks again for joining me, guys. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Steve, 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 Scientific Steves. We have evolved, we were created. We have evolved, we have evolved. We have evolved, we have evolved, we have evolved, we have evolved. We have Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other podcasts, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Sleepless nights, slow burn days, problems, proofs, endless delays.